Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. President Biden off to an emergency NATO meeting today warns of a potential threat, chemical weapons. Is it likely that Russia will use them against Ukraine? As NATO leaders prepare for their emergency summit on Thursday, Polish officials expel 45 Russian diplomats. They are accused of spying on Poland and posing a threat to NATO allies. Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson is facing her final day of questioning today and the heat has only gone up. What did she say about abortion, gender and illegal immigration? The Texas Attorney General accuses a school district of violating state law. The district is hosting Pride Week, which includes lessons and activities related to sexuality. But the AG alleges the district failed to obtain parental consent. The March for Life first started 50 years ago in Washington after Roe v. Wade. Today, it was held in Connecticut for the first time. NTD was on the scene. President Biden is now in Brussels. Tomorrow, he'll join NATO allies at an emergency meeting. Leaders will discuss their next moves in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. There's concern that Russia might use chemical weapons. President Biden was asked about this today. Here's his response. How high is that threat? I think it's a real threat. Thank you. But how would Biden respond if Russia did launch a chemical weapons attack? The administration hasn't outlined a specific response or a plan of action, but previously Biden said that Russia would pay a heavy price. Biden, alongside NATO leaders, will announce new sanctions on Russia tomorrow and a plan for tightening their existing sanctions. We'll have more information for you tomorrow on NATO's unified response to this war. As for President Biden, this four-day trip will test his ability to navigate the continent's worst crisis since World War II. After his meeting with NATO, Biden will fly to Warsaw. He'll meet with U.S. troops who are helping defend Poland, and he'll talk with Poland's president. U.S. officials today formally declared that Russia has committed war crimes. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says Moscow has violated the laws of conflict by launching aimless attacks and that Russian forces are deliberately targeting civilians as in those videos and photos of apartments, school buildings, and hospitals being destroyed. The United States will share its information with allies and partners to further the investigations of war crimes and crimes against humanity. As NATO leaders are preparing for an emergency summit on Thursday, Poland is expelling 45 Russian diplomats from the country. The individuals are accused of spying on Poland and posing a threat to NATO allies. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. NATO member Poland is taking a strong stance against Russian diplomats by expelling 45 of them. That's about half of the diplomats who worked at the Russian embassy in Poland. The reason for this decision was that the employees of the embassy of the Russian Federation undertook activities against the Polish law, but also in breach of the norms of the Vienna Convention, i.e. activities inconsistent with the status of diplomats. Polish officials said the individuals were identified as intelligence officers who were using their diplomatic status as cover to operate in the country and that they could pose a threat to NATO allies. Russia disagreed with the accusations. We value all our employees very highly and regret that we have to work without them. As for the replacement, Minister Prishadats said that there is no basis for such a large number of our employees here. 
So it seems that the Polish side will not agree to the replacement of our employees under the current conditions. Meanwhile, 40,000 NATO troops are already deployed throughout Eastern Europe, and NATO chief Jen Stoltenberg announced on Wednesday that he expects leaders to support adding more NATO troops. I expect leaders will agree to strengthen NATO's posture in all domains, with major increases to our forces in the eastern part of the alliance, on land, in the air, and at sea. He expects four new NATO battle groups to deploy to Bulgaria, Hungary, Romania, and Slovakia. Thank you so much. Jason Perry, NTD News. While many Ukrainians are focused on winning the war, some government officials are also trying to save the economy. NTD's Dan Skorback spoke to them about how they plan to keep the economy going during the war. The Lviv region in the western Ukraine has become a humanitarian hub for refugees fleeing the war in the east. But as the flow of people slows down, the administration is dealing with a new set of challenges. Today we sat with the governor of the Lviv region, who told us more details. At this moment we're working on the relocation of businesses. We're looking for those who want to move their manufacturing from the east to the Lviv region because we have a large number of refugees and we want to give them jobs. For us, it's important that other companies find these hubs and quickly re-establish manufacturing. Another thing we're worried about is the sowing season for crops. We're doing everything we can to make sure it happens on time and in its fullest capacity. These two elements are very important at this time. There's no shortage of people looking for work because, according to the governor, more than 450,000 refugees now live in the Lviv region. We also talked to Andriy Levkovich, the president of Ivano-Frankivsk Chamber of Commerce, which is also located in western Ukraine. He told us about seven companies which have already moved their businesses and manufacturing out of the war regions. Companies that work in the metal manufacturing sector, clothes manufacturing, food processing, we are creating conditions for them to keep working, from helping them to find offices or a plot of land, staffing and launching their business. These factories have a lot of international contracts that are still in power. For example, the sewing company that stopped here from Chernihiv, they started back up and started fulfilling their orders overseas. Although tanks and fighter jets are the obvious tools of war, a healthy economy keeps the country humming during and after the conflict. Dan Skorbak, NTD News, Lviv, Ukraine. Today was the second day of questioning for President Biden's Supreme Court nominee. How did she respond? And what can we expect from these hearings next? NTD's Iris Tao has more. Judge Kantanji Brown-Jackson is facing her final day of questioning. It follows a 13-hour hearing yesterday, and the heat has only gone up. Can an unborn child feel pain at 20 weeks in the birthing process? Senator, I don't know. Republicans today continue to grill Jackson on some of the most hot-button topics, with abortion on top of the list. The fetus can live outside the womb after about 23 weeks. Is that your understanding? Senator, I haven't studied this, so I, I don't know the, the um, a number of weeks in the way that you're okay. saying. That's adding to Jackson's comments during last night's questioning that she does not know when life begins or how to define a woman. Uh, can you provide a definition for the word woman? Can I provide a definition? Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. I can't. 
and her sentencing record again came to a head. It led to a testy line of questioning with Senator Lindsey Graham, who accused her of being wrong in her approach to sentencing internet-based child porn crimes. You can distribute tens of thousands. You can be doing this for 15 minutes, and all of a sudden, you are looking at 30, 40, 50 years in prison. Good. Cut. Good. I understand. Absolutely Senator, good. I hope you are. To do good. Allow her to finish, please. I hope you go to jail for 50 years if you're on the internet trolling for images please. of children. And here's Jackson defending herself after being repeatedly questioned on this topic. Under law. Senator, I've said what I'm going to say about these cases. No one case can stand in for a judge's entire record. Okay. Meanwhile, Democrats are calling Republican questioning testing ground for conspiracy theories and culture war theories and showing strong support in sending Jackson to the bench. America is ready for this Supreme Court glass ceiling to finally shatter. And you, Judge Catania Brown Jackson, are the person to do it. It's not yet clear whether Jackson will get any Republican support, but Democratic senators could confirm Jackson with all 50 votes and Vice President Kamala Harris breaking the tie. And tomorrow, the committee will hear from legal experts before an eventual vote to move Jackson's nomination to the Senate floor. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton has tested positive for COVID-19. She posted the news on Twitter saying she has mild cold-like symptoms. Her husband, former President Bill Clinton, tested negative and is feeling fine. But Clinton says he is quarantining until their household is fully clear. A spokesperson for the former president confirmed that he's feeling well and will continue to be tested over the coming days. And Madeleine Albright, the first female Secretary of State, has died of cancer. Her family said in a statement today, she was 84. President Bill Clinton chose Albright as America's top diplomat, and she served in that capacity from 1997 to 2001. Project Veritas is accusing the Justice Department of secretly spying on the journalism group's emails. The allegations are connected with the FBI's investigation of the theft of a diary belonging to President Biden's daughter. NTD's Allison Lee has the details. In a video posted Monday, Project Veritas says the DOJ under President Biden ordered Microsoft to hand over the privileged and constitutionally protected communications of eight Project Veritas journalists. Project Veritas, which uses Microsoft for its email accounts, says the DOJ obtained emails dating back to early 2020. This is a fundamental, intolerable abridgment of the First Amendment by the Department of Justice. The FBI raided the homes of several Project Veritas journalists in November 2021. Following the raids, U.S. District Judge Annalise Torres appointed a special master to shield protected materials collected in the raids from federal investigators. Project Veritas says the DOJ went around the judge and the special master. Recently obtained legal documents from Microsoft Corporation reveal that despite Judge Torres's orders, between November 2020 and April 2021, the Department of Justice went to six magistrates and obtained a series of secret warrants, orders, and a subpoena to surreptitiously collect privileged communications and contacts of eight American journalists. 
The FBI has been investigating Project Veritas over its alleged ties to the theft of a diary belonging to Biden's daughter, Ashley. The diary surfaced during the 2020 presidential campaign. Project Veritas is asking the court to immediately halt the government's access to the materials they obtained from Microsoft. The government's overstep, the SDNY's overstep, is a sign of unprecedented power that affects us all. The American Civil Liberties Union says they are deeply troubled by the reports. They write in a statement, We're concerned that the precedent set by this case could have serious consequences for press freedom. The government must immediately suspend its review of the materials obtained pursuant to its electronic surveillance orders and fully disclose the extent of its actions so that the court can consider appropriate relief. NTD reached out to the Justice Department but didn't get a response before airtime. Allison Lee, NTD News. The Texas Attorney General is accusing a school district of violating state law. The district is hosting Pride Week, which includes lessons and activities related to sexuality. The AG alleges the district has failed to obtain parental consent, as required by the state's education code. NTD's Grace Coulter has the story. The Austin Independent School District has faced scrutiny this week for hosting Pride Week in its pre-K through 12 schools. The district came under fire when this video of children participating in a school pride parade went viral. The parade took place at Doss Elementary, which serves pre-K through fifth grade. The now-deleted video was posted by the assistant principal and then reposted by libs of TikTok. The activities embracing LGBTQ sexuality have even drawn the attention of the Texas Attorney General. On Tuesday, Attorney General Ken Paxton sent a letter to the district, accusing it of violating state law. Paxton explained that the state's education code requires that before a student may be provided with human sexuality instruction, a school district must obtain the written consent of the student's parent. In addition, Paxton said that after just one full day of Pride Week, his office has received reports of group discussions on sensitive topics that students are encouraged to keep confidential, presumably from parents. NTD asked Austin ISD whether they obtained written consent from parents before students participated in Pride Week and whether parents were afforded this opportunity. In an email, the district said that everyone, not just parents, has access to the materials through their schools, and every parent has the right to opt out of these activities. The district superintendent responded to Paxton's letter on Twitter and said, I want all our LGBTQIA students to know that we are proud of them and that we will protect them against political attacks. She did not address the alleged legal violation. Paxton says objecting parents can file a formal legal complaint against the district. Grace Coulter, NTD News. The U.S. Supreme Court on Monday declined to hear a case involving a religious employer's decision to not hire a bisexual man. This means that a Washington state court will now decide whether the employer violated the law. NTD's Arlene Richards has the story. The U.S. Supreme Court on Monday declined to review a case involving a bisexual man who sued a religious employer because it refused to consider him for a job. The employer, Seattle's Union Gospel Mission, said hiring a bisexual man was against their policy, and it asked the higher court to review the case after a Washington state court questioned whether the job included ministering duties, such as giving religious advice. 
Kurt Levy, an attorney and president at the Committee for Justice, said that although the law protects religious employers, there is an exception when the job doesn't include ministering duties. In this case, the mission says the job does come with these duties, but Levy says there are differences in how the courts define them. Again, the U.S. Supreme Court is sympathetic to religious liberty. The Washington uh, Supreme Court, uh, as shown in this and, and other cases, is is not sympathetic. When the Supreme Court declined to review the mission's case, the court said the First Amendment under the U.S. Constitution allows religious organizations to operate according to their faith without government interference. According to Levy, there is a growing trend of LGBT activists filing lawsuits. There have been, you know, cases involving wedding cakes and, uh, you know, websites where uh, they've, you know, LGBT activists have have sued even though they could have gone to another bakery. He cautioned that if more states expand discrimination laws for LGBT, religious organizations may one day have to hire people who don't share their beliefs. In this case, the state court will decide if the ministering duties meet the state's definition. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Coming up, the March for Life first started almost 50 years ago in Washington, D.C. after Roe v. Wade. Today, it was held in Connecticut for the first time. NTD was on the scene. And the U.S. consulate in Russia finally gets access to WNBA star Brittany Griner, their assessment on her condition in, in detention. That and more coming up. The first ever March for Life event in Connecticut today. The first March for Life was held 50 years ago in Washington after Roe v. Wade. NTD's Arian Pazdar was on the scene. We're in Hartford, Connecticut at the Capitol building where the state's first March for Life event is going to be held today. I asked the president of the March for Life organization what their goal is here in Connecticut. We want to put a pause to any pro-abortion legislation. Um, so something that's being considered right now is the possibility of enshrining a right to abortion in the Constitution in this state. So we want to ask advocates to let their legislators know how they feel about that. Some say abortion is health care. What does she think about that? Well, taking the life of an unborn child isn't health care. Um, an unborn child is also made in God's image, just as the mother is made in God's image. So why can't we love them both, um, as these stickers, I think, are saying today. But the bottom line is that uh, life, you know, at its earliest stages is most vulnerable. Really, it's the poorest of the poor, and we need to do what we can as a society to protect the most vulnerable. That's how we measure the justness or the goodness of a society. I also spoke with a pro-life activist whose mother was scheduled to abort her here in Hartford, Connecticut in the 80s. My mother was planning on aborting me. She paid for the abortion and an elderly African-American janitor saw her crying in the hallway in a hospital gown, approached her and told her that God would give her the strength to have me. And my mom ended up walking out of the abortion doctor's office. That was after he yelled at her and told her that she'd already paid for the abortion and he told her not to leave the room. But she ran out and now I'm able to stand here today alive and that's thanks to my mom and to that janitor. She now travels around the country supporting pro-life causes. 
This concludes the first March for Life in Hartford, Connecticut, but there will be more around the nation. You can find out where they are at marchforlife.org. Arian Pastar, NTD News, Connecticut. The U.S. State Department has announced they've finally been granted consular access to WNBA star Brittany Griner, who's been detained in Russia for more than a month. Within the past couple hours, uh, an official from our embassy has been granted consular access to Brittany Griner. Uh, we were able to check on her condition. We will continue uh, to work very closely with her legal team, uh, with, uh, with her broader network. Our official found Brittany Griner to be in good condition, and we will continue to do everything we can uh, to see to it that she is uh, treated fairly throughout this ordeal. Griner was arrested at a Moscow airport reportedly in mid-February. Russian authorities said a search of her luggage found vape cartridges, allegedly containing oil derived from cannabis. Russian media reported that her detention has been extended to May 19th. Greiner, a seven-time WNBA All-Star, has played her off-seasons in Russia since 2015, where her pay is more than a million dollars a year. Women's top-ranked tennis star Ashley Barty announced her retirement on social media Tuesday. She wrote on Instagram, Today is difficult and filled with emotion for me as I announce my retirement from tennis. Barty also said she's thankful for everything the sport has given her and leaves feeling proud and fulfilled. Barty, an Australian, won the Australian Open Championship this past January and did so without dropping a set the entire tournament. The dominant win marked her third career Grand Slam title as well as her final competition on tour. Barty also won Wimbledon last summer and the French Open in 2019. She was 11-0 this season and has held the top spot in the WTA rankings since September of 2019. The Kansas City Chiefs traded star receiver Tyreek Hill to the Miami Dolphins. The six-time pro bowler is now set to sign a four-year, $120 million extension with Miami. This will make him the NFL's highest paid receiver. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Tyreek Hill is now a Dolphin, and he's suddenly the highest paid receiver in the game. In exchange for the 28-year-old Hill, the Chiefs received Miami's first, second, and fourth round picks in this year's draft, plus a fourth and a sixth next year, according to NFL Network's Ian Rappaport and Tom Pelissero. Hill is a three-time All-Pro, and his shocking trade to the Dolphins leaves the Chiefs and star quarterback Patrick Mahomes thin at the receiver position. But the team now has two first-round picks in what is expected to be a receiver-heavy draft next month. The extension the Dolphins gave to Hill tops the one Oakland handed to former Packers star receiver Devontae Adams just last week. The New York Post is reporting that Major League Baseball and the Players Union have agreed to some rule changes for the upcoming season only. First, rosters will be expanded to 28 players until May 2nd, at which time they'll go back to the normal 26. The move allows teams to carry more pitchers until they get up to speed after a shortened spring training. Additionally, the automatic runner on second base to start extra innings will also be back. The move is intended to shorten games in response to the additional doubleheaders in place to keep the full 162-game schedule. Baseball owners are scheduled to vote on the changes next week with a simple majority needed to pass them. Dave Martin, NTD News, New York. 
California continues to struggle with smash-and-grab theft up and down the state. Yet, for the second time this month, state lawmakers declined to advance a bill that would address the rising crime. A measure that aimed to reform California's Proposition 47 failed to make it out of the Committee on Public Safety on Tuesday. Assembly Bill 1603, introduced by Democratic Assemblyman Rudy Salas, aimed to reform Prop 47 by lowering the threshold for felony theft from $950 to $400. When I'm talking to law enforcement locally, when I'm talking to the business owners, when I'm talking to customers, they say, look, when the threshold was lower at $400, we didn't see the problems that we see now. Prop 47 is a 2014 voter-approved measure that reclassified certain low-level drug and property crimes from felonies to misdemeanors. Property theft under $950 is considered a petty theft misdemeanor, punishable up to six months in prison and fines. Many critics blame Prop 47 for the state's steady rise in crime. During the committee hearing, one witness testimony said Prop 47 led to a lack of accountability for offenders and reduced punishment for property theft. Thieves understand that, the mis that they are not going to be charged with a crime. And so every single day at our stores, we have people who run in, grab items, and leave. And this is just all across the board, up and down the valley. She said many business owners are struggling economically and psychologically from the rising theft. Uh, police officers, they're strained. They let us know that there's no point for them to come out. Uh, we employ folks as uh, you know, kids that come in 16, 17 years old, it's their first time job, and they're petrified and they're scared, and there's a real big liability to us as business owners. It also affects our vendors. Solace's bill would have lowered that threshold to $400, the amount it was before voters passed Prop 47. Now, I know that there's debate on whether this will actually make a difference and whether other states have higher limits, it's fine. But here in California, if you just talk to the locals, if you just talk to our business owners, they will tell you, since this changed, this is what we've seen. The bill received pushback from several opposition groups who said rolling back the felony threshold could impact rates of recidivism or relapses in criminal behavior. You, you really have to be concerned about the number of people that law enforcement will go after to fill the prisons. That is not a solution. That is what lowering the threshold will ultimately do, is just fill the prisons again. Solid's proposal came after a series of smash-and-grab robberies were seen throughout the state. Assemblyman Kevin Kiley introduced a similar bill to address the rising crime. Kiley's AB 1599 would have repealed Proposition 47 altogether, but the committee also killed that bill earlier this month. Cynthia Kai, NTD News, California. At least one person is dead after tornadoes swept through parts of Louisiana last night. Residents and rescue crews in the New Orleans area are still combing through debris and assessing damage. The man who died was identified as 25-year-old Connor Lambert. He was a resident of Araby in St. Bernard Parish, where the tornado downed power lines and caused serious damage. The president of St. Bernard Parish says some homes in the iconic French Quarter were lifted off the ground. No word yet on the number of injuries, though there are many reports of many seeking treatment. Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards toured the area this afternoon and offered his prayers to victims. Earlier today, he declared an emergency in St. Bernard, Orleans, Jefferson and St. Tammany parishes. Coming up, a new study ranks all of America's governors based on their economic policies. Can you guess who came in first? 
sick or dying trees can be a hassle to deal with. They can be unsightly and even dangerous. One city came up with a solution to deal with the problem. report ranks all 50 governors in the United States. The rankings are mostly based around policies that promote economic freedom. Let's see who came out on top. A new report ranks all of the United States governors from first to last for 2021. Nine Republican and one Democratic governor took the top 10 positions. Democrats held the bottom 10. Coming in at number one is South Dakota Republican Governor Kristi Noem. The top Democratic governor was Jared Polis of Colorado, coming in at fourth place overall. Other top rankings included Utah's Spencer Cox and Florida's Ron DeSantis. The rankings were evaluated by economist Arthur Laffer and Associates and the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC. Judgments were based around the economic freedom of each governor's policies more specifically on executive policies, economic performance, and fiscal policy. On the other end, populous states like New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Michigan, and California all received bottom-end rankings. Former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo ranked 46th, Illinois' J.B. Pritzker 47th, and California's Gavin Newsom 48th. Top-ranked states had similar traits, including low taxes, low unemployment, limited unemployment benefits, and higher domestic energy production. On the other hand, Jonathan Williams, Alex's chief economist and contributor to the report, told the Center Square that there's a lot of competition for the bottom. He said bottom-ranked governors are looking to empower government to have a more command-and-control top-down economic system where it empowers politicians and not the markets, not business owners and individuals. Sick or dying trees can be a hassle to deal with. They can be unsightly and even dangerous. The city of Chicago has figured out a way to give some of them a second life. Here are the details. In Chicago, artists are transforming dying trees into works of art. It's part of the Chicago Tree Project, a partnership between the city's Parks Department and Chicago Sculpture International, a nonprofit arts organization. Uh, we started uh, this partnership in 2014. The uh, emerald ash borer was a uh, pest that came through the Midwest. It came from Asia on shipping pallets, and with few natural predators, it started attacking our ash trees. So the Chicago Park District came to Chicago Sculpture International and suggested a partnership where we change the trees into sculpture. Janet Austin is the president of Chicago Sculpture International. She's also a sculptor herself. She says not all afflicted trees can be used. They need a relatively solid core and foundation. But that's not easy to tell until an artist starts working on a tree. Cara James, a beautiful tree carver, who's um, been given a tree and she'll start working on it and then she'll find that the entire inside is rotted out. Fortunately, this sugar maple tree is solid. Right now it's been a chainsaw to rough it in, then I do uh, an angle grinder with a blade on it, and I'm able to get more of the three-dimensional quality of the rope. And I also have a, um, a die grinder with a router bit on it to be able to get into some tighter spots. 
Each artist integrates their personal style into the sculptures, so there's a wide variety of themes. Artist John Bannon has an interesting theme for his piece. Kind of looks like a lowercase y with that limb coming out. Um, so I just thought I'd try it. How about a, a big rope or string coming out of the ground with a knot in it? And it's sort of a play on words. It's a, so it's a why knot. An Austin sculpture shows how parasites kill a tree. My idea was to do a maze on the outside of the tree that replicated the mazes that the insects themselves bore um, into the tree. So when the animals bore these little trails, they cut off all of that nutrients and the tree eventually dies. When the sick trees are transformed, they bring vibrancy and fun to public spaces. Currently, there are 42 tree sculptures in parks throughout Chicago for people to enjoy. Coming up, investigators announced that they have recovered one of the black boxes from the Chinese flight that crashed on Monday. Authorities hope it will explain what made the plane go down. And a British businessman is providing a new home to a Ukrainian family of 10. They're settling in the UK after nearly three weeks of traveling to escape the war. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Day three of search efforts after a Boeing 737 went down in China. Rescue workers are now finding human remains among the wreckage, but still with no signs of life. The aircraft's black box has also been recovered, but the cause of the accident remains unknown. Rescue efforts saw a breakthrough on Wednesday night. Emergency responders claimed they had found human tissue fragments among the aircraft parts. Desperate and grief-stricken relatives of the victims arrived at the crash site the same day. All I want is hope, the hope of survival. The government didn't say anything. I'm here to check it out. Police set up a checkpoint at a nearby village close to the site as the victim's loved ones streamed into the area. Do you think there's still hope of survival? I don't know. How did you feel the moment when you heard the news? It was like my heart just dropped. According to CNN, one of the passengers was a mother. She hadn't seen her daughter for years and had been making the trip to meet her. Another woman had been on her way to reunite with her fiancé after months apart. A Beijing-based media outlet reported that a young girl was also on board, flying back home to celebrate her 16th birthday. One man explains how he narrowly and unknowingly escaped boarding the now-crashed plane after changing his ticket to an earlier flight. But six of his relatives and friends, including his sister, weren't so lucky. They are among the missing victims. One of the two black boxes from the plane was found on Wednesday, though the cockpit voice recorder was severely damaged. Workers are still searching for the flight data recorder. The crash struck when the Boeing 737-800 jet plunged to the ground on Monday before landing in southern China's Guangzhou City. 132 Chinese citizens were on board. Publishing the interim reports normally takes around a month. Deeper investigations may take up to a year or even longer. The aircraft that went down is part of Boeing's 737 family. China is Boeing's second largest market after the United States. And over to the UK, the British finance minister announces what the Treasury called the biggest personal tax cuts in a quarter of a century. 
fuel tax is down 5 pence per liter, or about 10 cents per gallon, alongside several other tax cuts for both workers and businesses. But the Labour Party says it's not enough to help struggling households cope with rising food, fuel and energy prices. This report comes from NTD's Malcolm Hudson. Chancellor Rishi Sunak announced a five pence per litre cut to fuel duty and an increase to the national insurance threshold by £3,000. His spring statement comes in the wake of the cost for living crisis, which has seen inflation soar and fuel prices skyrocket. But Labour accused him of not doing enough to help people who are struggling. Rising prices across the board sent UK inflation soaring to a new 30-year high this February. Petrol prices are averaging around £1.67 per litre and diesel £1.79. Today, I can announce for only the second time in 20 years, fuel duty will be cut. Not by one, not even by two, but by five pence per litre. Sunak said it's the biggest ever cut to all fuel duty rates. The cut started at 6pm on Wednesday and will last until March next year. He also announced an increase to the national insurance threshold from £9,568 to £12,570. From this July, people will be able to earn £12,570 a year without paying a single penny of income tax or national insurance. However, his announcements weren't met by cheers across the board. The Shadow Chancellor, Rachel Reeves, accused them of not Thank doing you, enough. Mr. Today was the day that the Chancellor could have put a windfall tax on oil and gas producers to provide real help to families. But he didn't. Reeves said that with soaring fuel prices, Labour suggested windfall tax would now raise £3 billion in tax money. She also pointed out that Sunak didn't scrap the hike to national insurance contributions of 1.25%. Reeves said this hike would impact low earners the most. She says it's contrary to Sunak's claims to help them. We are presented with increasingly incredible claims. Perhaps the Chancellor has been taking inspiration from the characters in Alice in Wonderland. Or should I say, Alice in Sunakland. Because nothing here is quite as it seems either. Sunak disagreed. There's a reason the Institute, Independent Institute for Fiscal Studies, called this the best way to help low and middle earners through the tax system. And that is because, that is because 70% of workers will pay less tax, even accounting for the levy, Mr Speaker. People in London's Green Park had mixed feelings about the Chancellor's announcements. Uh, I'm self-employed, so I'll be honest. Like, I think that like a national insurance level should be controlled, but I kind of think that about things in general. Like, um, I don't like to complain too much, but uh, it is extremely expensive to live at the moment. The government should have stepped in a lot more. I mean, during the pandemic, they didn't really do that much for the everyday person. It was the corporations that got more of a break and got more bailouts than the average person. And now energy costs are rising, cost of living has risen, and there's no sort of support at all. Um, yeah. Um, personally, I'm dealing very fine with the energy price increase at the moment. It doesn't affect me too much. However, I think people around me talking about the energy price increase is, is not, they're not dealing very well with it. Rishi Sunak has been working hard to be the Chancellor who cuts taxes rather than the Chancellor who increases them. 
At the end of his statement, he made a surprise admission that he wants to drop the basic rate of income tax by one pence in the pounds. Only time will tell if he fulfills this ambition. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. A Ukrainian family of 10 are moving into a home near Cambridge after nearly three weeks of traveling to escape the war. The oldest member of the family is a 90-year-old great-grandma, while the youngest is only 10. Their new home is provided by a businessman who will also be their new neighbor. NTD's Joy Dugood has more. A big Ukrainian family has recently found a new home in the UK after escaping from Kharkiv. It's provided by 52-year-old Mick Swinho, an executive at an industrial automation company. Swinho said he bought the house next to his own in Caldecott, eight miles west of Cambridge, just before the war broke out, and he initially planned to use it as a project house. But later he changed his plans, and after posting on Facebook groups, he was connected with this family. This four-generation family, ranging in age from 10 to 90, have come to the UK under the Ukraine Family Scheme. Their relative, Roman Starkov, has lived in the UK for 20 years and works as a software developer in Cambridge. His sister, Valeria Starkova, says she feels so relieved her extended family have found a place to live. Oh, I feel um, that they're saving our lives. Because otherwise we would, we would stay. I don't know where we would stay because it's quite expensive. Valeria said when the war broke out in Kharkiv, she and her children packed a few suitcases and went to her mum's home and stayed in the basement for five days without going out. Then they decided to leave. We couldn't sleep, but it was so scary and that's why we just... Uh, put our bags in the cars and went, uh, were so afraid of uh, someone will shoot our cars or something like that, because uh, recently, one day ago, my friends, were, uh, friends of my friends were shot like that, uh, and it was so scary to go there. After arriving in Romania, eight of them took a flight from Albania to London Luton Airport. Valeria and her father came by car and ferry so that they could bring more of their belongings and two pet dogs. They travelled through 13 countries and arrived four days later on Tuesday. Oh, it was um, very difficult and a very long journey because it took about 20 days and um, uh, we had few places where we had to stay uh, and uh, some of them were very nice and some of them were like uh, terrible condition. Valeria was a nail technician and she says she hopes to find a job soon. Joy Dugid, NTD News. A French presidential candidate is proposing a wall along EU borders to prevent illegal immigration an issue studies show is important to the French. The candidate claims it's causing a surge of violence in the country. NTD's France correspondent David Vives brings us this report. Far-right candidate Eric Zemmour said on Monday he would like to create a Ministry of Immigration to expel illegal immigrants, delinquents and foreign criminals. The candidate also proposed creating a wall at all the borders of Europe, a measure inspired by the former U.S. President Donald Trump. The candidate faces accusations of being too radical, as he points out a link between immigration and insecurity. 
Data compiled in 2021 by French outlet Le Figaro shows, quote, a spectacular hike of violence in the country, including assault and battery. Burglaries and sexual assaults have also increased over the past two years. The number of assaults have increased from 300,000 in 2019 to 350,000 in 2021, across the six first months of each year. But very little data exists to show a link between these acts and illegal immigrants. Author and former journalist Laurent Auberton has noted this several times in his book and says this topic is taboo. The mere link between immigration and the security is already socially dangerous. Bringing up this subject is a risk for you, your credibility. The media is blocking this message. In a way, it prevents people from asking questions. In 2018, Minister of Interior Gérard Collomb resigned. He said France was at the age of a civil war and that different communities who used to be side by side might eventually be against each other. He said the situation in certain districts would degenerate and become ghettos. Auberton wrote about the situation in a best-selling book called France, a Clockwork Orange. He says immigration has positive sides but also some unresolved issues. What we see is the collapse of social bonds. I mean the trust that unites people. There is an overall situation where people don't trust each other. Local authorities provide help to this community, that community, on small matters, but the general issue remains unaddressed. He said French President Emmanuel Macron already made promises to expel foreign delinquents, but did not keep his word, and the government can't be trusted. The government organizes immigration, it's a matter of fact. The French state delivers visas. In theory, Macron is the gatekeeper at the border. A large number of people have voted against immigration. We can say our sovereignty on that matter has been taken from us. According to a study published last week by the Interior Ministry, this insecurity surrounding immigration is the second largest concern for French people. David Dives, Antilles News, Paris. Up next, a troop in Australia still fights crime the old-fashioned way on horseback. They form a key unit of the local police in Queensland. One veteran in Chicago turned his passion into a business. Now he's giving back to help the veteran community. That and more coming up on NTD News. The oldest police unit in Queensland, Australia, is still on the front lines fighting crime. In an era of high-tech policing, they're riding on horseback. Let's take a look. This is the Mounted Unit, a 150-year-old police cavalry within the Queensland Police Service. As valiant as they appear, training on horseback is not easy for new recruits. They're sitting on top of a you know, seven to 800 kilo animal who has a mind of its own. Um, and obviously that's where we're relying on the strong bonds that we have between the riders and the horses. The cavalry prepares for the unexpected with obstacles and distraction training. If I have to get into a brawl or a fight, probably not that intimidating on my own, but uh, on my horse, you know, I've got 750 kilos of amazing backup. Locals call them the Mounties. There are a total of nine officers and 12 horses working across Queensland. The community are a lot more willing to engage with us as police while we're on horse. And no two days are the same, from ceremonial duties at official events to crime fighting in late night party precincts. They also help out local police stations at frontline crime hotspots. Whether that's through community engagement or whether that's identifying 
uh, crime and offenders in areas that potentially service vehicles aren't able to get into. The cavalry has proven to be a powerful tool in the fight against crime. And the bond they forge between them is as strong as the horses themselves. One veteran-owned business is in Chicago is giving back big time. And its generosity is being rewarded with unexpected success. NTD's Jessica Beattie has the story. Steve Lulofs from the Chicago suburbs likes to barbecue. But he never planned on becoming a grill master until he accidentally won a rib competition and bought something with his accidental winnings. How it actually all started was is I won a March Madness competition and won a few hundred dollars and I was figuring out what do I need to do with the money or you know a couple hundred bucks I might as well just go and spend it. So I decided to buy a barbecue smoker. It turned out the smoker, coupled with his barbecue sauce, made really good food. Lulofs then decided to make his own barbecue sauce and seasoning in his kitchen and sign up for more competitions. When it started, I just went online and uh, researched on how many different recipes, maybe like 10 or so, and um, kind of found the most common ingredients and then um, kind of just put everything together on what I liked and that's how I came up with the recipe. Lulofs' kitchen experiment paid off. He kept on winning more competitions and eventually he turned his hobby into a business in 2017. So here's our original barbecue sauce. Um, this was the first one we started with. We had this one out for about nine months before we moved on to the to our second bo bottle sauce, which is um, our Sweet Heat. Sweet Heat actually um, a couple years ago became, they got ranked the number one spicy barbecue sauce in the country. Not only are his products good, but Lulofs is also doing good with his business. When I first started uh, barbecuing and selling sauce, I didn't think I would sell maybe a few hundred bottles a year at the most. And we were like, why not just donate the money? So Lou Lofts, who served in the Army for eight years, donated his profits to charities benefiting veterans. When the word got out, orders snowballed beyond his kitchen's capacity. To meet the rising demand, Lou Lofts outsourced the production. The end goal would be to have our own manufacturing facility so we could go ahead and employ veterans and uh, risk at youth, uh, children from inner cities. Lou Lofts' manufacturer makes about 40,000 bottles a year. They're sold in almost 300 stores across the country and online. So far, he's donated $50,000 and will be donating 50% of his profits this year. The remaining 50% will be reinvested back into the company. The better his business does, the more he can help veterans. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.